So tonight, myth of the modern American mind, religion. <clears throat> now America, you might have noticed, uh, is a weirdly religious country and a religiously weird country. We are both. We are an intensely, incredibly religious country in our history, origin, and development. Um, but the way we're religious is very, very strange. And to get a handle on this, it's important to look at the history of sort of the development of religion in the United States, which is coterminous, coterminous with the development of our, of our country itself. Um, and so I want to work through that. But first, just to give you a sense, if you look at the various surveys, there's all kinds of ways to do this. The United States always comes out as one of the most religious countries in the world. We're, we're right up there with like Iran and Pakistan and India. Um, and, and so as far as being very religious, depending on how you score these. Um, just two examples here. Pew, actually Pew Research Center was very reliable. They have an entire center on religion and the public that, that studies these kinds of things. And when they do their questionnaires, they get up so that a religious self-identification, this is the first chart there, of the 5% of Americans who do not believe in God or a universal spirit. So the first thing to note is when they ask, do you believe in God? You get about 80 to 85% say yes. They say, if you say no, do you believe in a universal spirit? Almost everybody else says yes. So that's where, so 95% of the people will respond, give or take, that they believe either in God or a universal spirit. This is extraordinarily high by world standards. There's only a few countries where the response is greater, and there's reason to believe in those countries that people would lie. Like if you're in Saudi Arabia, you don't say, oh yeah, I'm an atheist. That's a bad idea, right? It does, doesn't work for you. So this is a very high response rate. But strangely, even of the 5% of people who say, no, I'm neither, neither, none of the above. I'm not, I don't believe in a universal spirit, nor do I believe in God, you know, sort of traditional Christian or monotheistic God. Here's how they break down. About 24% of that 5%, so you know, 1% or 2% of the population, will say, I am an atheist. Some polls have this higher, some polls have it lower. It really depends how you ask the question, but there's no more than 4 or 5% of the population, at most, that will say, yeah, I I'm an atheist. Some people are nothing in particular, some people are agnostic. And then, weirdly, people who say that they don't believe anything will self-identify as Christian or Muslim. So the, the Pew Center is not sure what to do with that exactly, but they do self-identify that way. So, you know, so we're a country that's looking at 85 to 95% theistic belief, which again, by all world standards, is immense. Just to give you another example of this, um, in the United States today, there's roughly four or five million uh, young people enrolled in religious schools. Those are called madrasas, um, <laughs> which is roughly triple or quadruple the number of children in religious schools in Pakistan. So, you know, we talk about these, you know, fundamentalist schools all over the world. No, there's far more in the United States, even per capita, than there are in countries, again, like Pakistan. Um, we believe in this stuff. Millions and millions of schools dedicated specifically to this purpose. Plus, many of the students who don't go to school um, are, are homeschooled for religious reasons, which you can pitch in another million young people there. So it is incredibly influential, um, but also weird. And we're going to talk about the weirdness of this. Um, 
So how did, how did we get here? First, we want to go back to the Reformation. And, and the Reformation, people like to use the word revolution very loosely. The Reformation was truly a revolution. It was a systematic, violent, fundamental shift in who ran the show. Because up until the Reformation, the Catholic Church ran the show. And so when you talk about religious change, the Catholic Church was hugely diverse. But the banks often were Catholic or Catholic associated. The land was owned, much of it was owned by the Catholic Church. Many of the rulers were associated with, appointed by, had interests in, in tandem with the Catholic Church. And so it was a non-revolutionary. It was a very conservative force in the sense of we're in control. We don't want to change anything. And so the notion of salvation, if you want to think of it that way, was almost entirely personal. It wasn't political, it wasn't cultural, it wasn't institutional, it was personal. You had people pray, you could hire monks to pray for you, which I think is a great idea. Just, you know, sort of get the people to do it for you. Uh, vestries, chantries, all these sorts of institutions. You purchased salvation for yourself or your relatives. When you went into confessional, you did it in theory privately. It was you anonymously. It was very personal and private. You were not talking about social change, social responsibility, all that, because the church was in large part, not entirely, but it was a big part of the ruling power of Europe, or certainly Central and Western Europe. What the Reformation did is not just say, hey, the Catholic Church has some doctrinal things we don't like, some theological issues we would like to discuss. They said, no, we want different people running the show. The church doesn't appoint the priests. We want to elect them is one of the, one of the great examples. The, the, the priests don't tell you what to do. We're going to take over the city councils. We're going to take over the mayor's office. We're going to institute a whole new social system. The individuals and institutions that we're controlling hospitals, uh, civic organizations, monasteries, nunneries, are going away. We are kicking those people out. New people are coming in to run the show, control the money, to take care of taxation, own the land, or redistribute the land, as the case may be. So it wasn't just a, the Reformation was not just a, a religious war, although of course it was that. It was a, a political battle about power. And the Puritans, the Calvinists and the Lutherans and all these folks, wanted to take over because they wanted to make change. But the change was not about saving themselves. The change was make real, social, legal, cultural, uh, in cities, in states, the way people live. We're going to change the rules. We're going to redistribute the income. We're going we're to change the power. And so the princes and the rulers had to make a choice. Well, do we side with these new people? Do we fight against them? And so then you get the incredibly complicated wars of the Reformation with people choosing up sides, trying to win and come out on top. But what's important to note is that the drive, one of the driving forces was, look, the world is wrong. The Pope is the whore of Babylon. He's the Antichrist. It's the end times. And we've got to change the world and make it a better place. That's what Puritanism, Calvinism, Lutheranism is one of the driving motive forces of it. At the same time, the new world is discovered. 
and, and for the Puritans, it's like, oh, this is our chance. Here's the unspoiled country, the, the, the rot of the Pope, the rot of the old Christian fallacies and the sin of our forebears is not there. It's a pristine, untouched, excuse me, Native American land, right? Nobody here really who counts. <laughs> Although there was a big theory that this was the lost tribes of Israel, the natives were the lost tribes, we'd finally found them, which also started the end times. Lots of millenarianism, we'll get to that. Um, and so when the Calvinists, the Protestants, came to the United States, or not the United States, then the New World, what was to become the United States, many of the colonies were founded specifically to set up the shining city on the hill, the incarnation of God's plan on the planet. Excellent. So you had radical religious figures from Europe come and say, now we're going to set up the right kind of country. We're going to set up the right kind of city. We're going to fill it with the right people. And then God will bless us and all good things will follow. Of course, the inevitable happened, which was nobody could agree on what the right was. And so you had congregationalists and you had, you know, Lutherans. It's just this incredible mix of religious concepts, all of which were battling with each other and all of which would drive and try to stomp out uh, anybody that they didn't agree with, which was basically everybody else. So lots of factionalism, lots of infighting, lots of switching back and forth, who was in control. So it created this just swirl of religious uh, innovation uh, and struggle and strife and persecution. Uh, you know, the Oneida, the, uh, I mean, God, the, the Quakers, the Shakers. I mean, there's just this endless number of, of splinter groups. That, that came off of these different movements. But what it meant was you had religious ferment directed towards creating a new and perfect world. And if you didn't like the way it was, you just formed a new splinter group and you moved generally west or to move someplace where there weren't very many people, of which there was a lot of room available, unlike Europe. In the United States, you could find some more room, you know, move, move up, displace the Indians, take their land. Hey, we can start a new country here and just keep doing this. In fact, you know, this kept, kept going on. This is what the Mormons were doing in Utah. This is a continuation of the history of the United States. You just keep moving further west, find some land, set up a new perfect world, right? New country, God's country. Um, and so you have this unbelievably religious country, lots of religious strife, and then you get the Revolutionary War. Which was which was a war of independence, as they say, but you know, sort of, let's make our new country, our own country. And so they say, right, so we win. Time to drop a constitution. And so we drop a constitution that's one of the first large-scale constitutions in the history of the world that says, hey, everybody has freedom of religion, First Amendment. There will have no establishment of a federal religion. Now, why would such a religious country do this? Well, one answer is, at the time of the founding of the country, you had the 13 colonies, and they broke down this way. Of the original colonies, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire were congregationalists, which you can think of sort of Calvinist. Georgia, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia were Church of England, C of E. No established religion in Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. And Delaware just kept going back and forth. 
Um, Maryland, by the way, was a Catholic for a while, I think, and they went back to Church of England. So, you know, you had that going on as well. But of course, you had Jews, you had all kinds of other people as well. So several of the states had established religions. Several of the states did not. But notice you're the founding fathers, you're there at the Continental Convention, you have to draw up a constitution. It needs to be ratified by pretty much everybody. You can't be C of E because you'll piss off Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. You can't be Congregationalist because you'll piss off Georgia, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. You can't be none of the above because you'll piss off Georgia, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, right? So how do you come to an agreement that doesn't piss everybody off and allows your constitution to be ratified? Do you say, look, everybody's free to do what they want. Originally, the states heard this as, oh, we get to keep our established religions the way they are. So we'll sign off on that. This turns out not to be the case over time. But this is what the states heard when they signed off of it. Oh, no federal religion, great, we're good to go. And then the Supreme Court cases start, and they haven't stopped since. But, 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 so there's immediately this whole, there's a whole series of Supreme Court cases where they're saying, well, hey, you can't have an established religion. They're like, hey, what do you mean? Well, First Amendment of the Constitution says no established religion. This means you, Maryland or Connecticut or whomever. So one part of it is we were so religious there was no way to make a national religion. See, this is different from being like, well, we don't care that much about religion. Everybody be great. No, it was just the other way around. Understand America, you have to understand in our founding, it was we were so religious we couldn't agree on what religion should be federal. And so to prevent a civil war, a religious war, and to get people to sign on to the Constitution, they said, the only thing we can do is let everybody just be. You do what you want, states, and then there won't be trouble. And so the states are like, OK, we'll sign off on that, like I said, which turned out not to be true over time. The second thing is, many, not all of our founding fathers, you'll read all this material about was America founded as a Christian nation? Were the founding fathers Christian? Some of them were. It turns out our first five presidents, probably not. And so I wanted to, I wanted to um, put this out here just so you get a sense of this. So Washington was extremely private about his faith. It's hard to know what he believed because he was unbelievably, he just, he wouldn't do anything publicly. He would do just enough not to get in trouble. But what he was very public about was freedom of religion. He consistently said freedom of the religion is a hallmark of a civilized nation and is one of the great innovations of America. And there's a letter that he wrote to, a famous letter that he wrote to a rabbi in Boston, I think, where he says, it's not freedom from persecution that we offer in America. It's not tolerance that we offer. It's freedom from fear. It's the knowledge that no one is going to bother you when you exercise the freedom of your conscience. That's what you need. We're not tolerating you. We're embracing your diversity. So it's a really great letter from Washington. So that was Washington. Probably a deist, but really he was so private it's hard to know. Um, then you had Adams, who was at least a nonconformist. And there are some of his writings that suggest he was opposed to religion, hostile to it, at least hostile to its uh, 
you know, incarnation in the world to churches and priests and religious education. He was pretty hostile, so he may have been actually anti-religious, but at the very least, very non-conformist, non-standard. Jefferson, uh, yeah, Jefferson, there's a whole bunch written about what the hell Jefferson was thinking. Likely, he was probably the purest deist. He did seem to believe in some sort of created world by a power, but the idea of deism is that God or some force created the world and then left. And so now we're on our own natural science, reason, and all that. Let's roll, right? Which is one kind of religious idea. Um, he was often, often accused by his enemies of being an atheist, which he resoundingly did not answer. Um, <laughs> Madison was an enemy of orthodox religion. Now, whether he was a deist or an agnostic, it's hard to tell again. Um, but he, he uh, very reticent, very private, but certainly an enemy of orthodoxy. And then we got Monroe, who left no record, as far as we can tell, of ever having said anything about religion whatsoever, which is astounding for someone living in that time. So on the one hand, it's suggestive, but all we know is he just, no reference whatsoever. In his private letters, people talking about what he did, um, he was never known to take communion, for instance, again, quite rare in his time. So you have this weird mix at the origin. Very religious population, I mean really religious. Combined with a legal system or, or, or a framework, a constitutional framework that was set up to prevent religious fighting. Don't fight. Everybody has freedom within the context that you understand it, don't ask too closely. And then you had five presidents in a row. So this is from 1789 to 2825. So, you know, 36 years to get people this, this, this just, the notion that the federal government is not going to interfere really established. It would have been a different country if the first president had come aboard and was like a radical fundamentalist Catholic and said, you know, we're really going to, you know, we're going to have the Pope visit, come on a bus, we'll be great. You know, that would've, it, would, it would have been a different sort of experience. But we had five presidents in a row who really had at, at least a hands-off approach. At most, were actively opposed to any sort of thought of a, of a national religion or a federalized religion. And so this really set the stage for this strange dichotomy, federally, hands off, don't make a comment, keep your mouth shut. Domestically, lots of people who are very religious. And it exposes what is the secret to understanding religion today, which is what we're going to talk about next in the United States, which is everyone is presumed to be religious. You are not allowed to talk about what that means. Nobody agrees about anything. This is the key. We're all presumed to be religious. This, the polling supports this quite strongly. You're never supposed to talk about it in any detail. We'll look at that. And there is absolutely no agreement whatsoever on anything, which is why we can't talk about it. Right? It, it, is, it is a vastly more complicated model um, than, than what we had before. Just to give you one example of how strong this prohibition against discussing the content of religion is the... the when Mitt Romney ran against uh, Barack Obama, here was a very high-level leader of a very large religious sect in the United States was never formally asked about how his religious beliefs informed what he would do as president, how they varied, what his responsibility to the church would be versus to his elective office. 
And he wasn't a random member. He was like a lay bishop of a, of a major, huge, multi-million person religious institution. But no, we can't ask him about that. Not in any detail. What were George Bush's religious beliefs? We don't know. There's all this controversy about Barack Obama's religion. Is he a, is he a crypto-Muslim? How would you know because you don't have any... They could all be crypto-Muslims because you never know what any of them were thinking. You know, that that because we'd never ask. Ronald Reagan? You know, that it, he kept saying, well, God bless America. And we thought, well, there you go. He's a Christian. Being a Christian equals saying God bless America, right? We, we just don't know. We have no clear guidelines. So to give you first an idea of the kind of, so again, 90 to 95% of Americans will give you some sort of theistic response to a poll. And again, Pew does a lot of this and it comes out roughly similar to this all the time. Um, here's a list of denominations with roughly a million or more members. So these are the major denominations, not the teeny ones of which there's an endless number. Um, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Foursquare, Anglican, Episcopalian, Mormon, Church of Christ, United Church of Christ, Unaffiliated, Jehovah Witnesses, Assemblies of God, Evangelical Free, Church of God, Seventh-day Adventists, and Orthodox Churches. All those are major denominations that have roughly a million to, like the Catholics, tens of millions of followers. But what is the difference between a Methodist a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, and a Baptist. Turns out nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows. We do not have the vaguest notion. Not only do we not have the vaguest notion, the people who attend the churches have no notion. Because the one thing you can't talk about in America, particularly in church, is theology. It is the top. You think I'm kidding. It is a completely taboo subject have any discussion of theology whatsoever. And this is why we do, people talk about the rise of religion in the country. This is a mistake, I think, or I think it's a mistake. It is a mistake on what's going on. Every time there's a controversy, insecurity, uh, threats in the United States, you get religious response on every side. So during the Civil War, you had vast religious tracts saying, slavery is evil, condemned by God, we've got to free the African-American slaves. And you had just as many and just as lucid and just as great arguments on the side of slavery as in the Old Testament, which it is, God wants us to control the black. You know, here we go, both sides. You have theology on every side of every issue. So when religion comes to the foreign American life, it's not a sign of a rebirth of religion because we are crazy religious all the time. It's a sign of insecurity, disturbance, and change. This is what we're, what's what we're experiencing now with what's going on contemporaneously. Um, and so issues about which the denominations that I listed above disagree. Which books belong in the Bible? Well, that's a big one. <laughs> You have everything from the Catholic Church, which has the Apocrypha, a few extra books, makes it longer. It doesn't need to be any longer, but there it is. Um, you have uh, the Mormons, who have added a few books. That's nice. Um, you have uh, the, um, I think it's the Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is a great church historically. They do not allow the Book of Revelation. They're not supposed to have it in there. So we don't agree on what books are in the Bible. We don't agree on which translation of the Bible to use. Now, this is huge, because the variation in the translation of the Bible is titanic. 
It's not small. It's immense. And the number of Bibles that are used by these different sects is uh, it's tr 50 or 100. I mean, it's just it's limitless. There's lots of them, and they're always making new ones. Um, so we don't agree on which books are in the Bible, which translation we're going to use. The relative importance of the Old and New Testament. This is one of those big arguments. If we just believe in the Old Testament, we're Jewish, right? If we believe in the New Testament, many of the Pentecostal free churches tend to lean that way. But it's a big debate. And the, the example further down I have is why, why this matters is the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of crazy stuff, um, which is fun. But one of my favorites is this is Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, he will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out to the elders of the city and under the gate of the place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. By the way, did I mention that we're going to do that food night? Uh, <laughs> yeah, food for that, right? Don't miss it. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So the number of things you can be stoned for in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is immense. It's titanic. It's fun. Um, they stoned for everything. Parking tickets, stonings. But should we listen to that? Do we believe it? Is this important? Should we follow the rules of Deuteronomy? Well, it depends. Some sects say, forget the Old Testament. Some say, no, the Old Testament is really, really important. Um, Jesus, for his part, said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest part of the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law. So there's passages in the New Testament that says you have to do exactly what's in the Old Testament. Right? But how do you read that? The variation amongst all of these groups is immense. Another example is uh, from the Ten Commandments, of which there are not ten, and there's no agreement, by the way, on which ten they would be, um, because there's like 32, by the way, in, in the Bible. Um, and different sects have different... You know, versions of the Ten Commandments. You can look at this. It's quite, quite fascinating. At least I find it fascinating. Exodus 20, 12, honor thy father and mother. That sounds good. Luke 14, 26. This is Jesus again. If anyone comes to me and hates not his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. So if you want to hate your parents, we got a Bible passage for you. If you want to honor them, we have a Bible passage for you. Whatever you want, we've got a Bible passage for you because we've got lots of Bibles to choose from with lots of different books and lots of different translations. And all of these sects have different takes. So we have different books, the relative importance of the Old and New Testaments, the importance of baptism. Should you do it? Do you have to do it? Can you go to heaven without being baptized? Do you do children? Do you do adults? Do you only do adults, Anabaptists? Or do you do everybody? Or is baptism, who cares? All of the above are available. Um, literal versus metaphoric meaning of the biblical texts. Seven days for the creation of the earth. Is that a rough estimate or is it seven literal days? It depends on who you listen to. Uh, the, literal, uh, the, the importance of communion, should you do it, is important. Some say absolutely yes. Catholic, Orthodox tends to be, or all the way to no. Communion, totally unimportant. If you never get communion in your entire life, you're perfectly good to go. 
Uh, is the communion literal or symbolic? This is sacerdotal versus non-sacerdotal communionism. Um, if you are actually eating the body of Christ, that's sacerdotal, that means the priest has transformed the bread into the body and the wine into the blood, literally. If not, then you think it's symbolic. Generally, people don't like to think about it at all. Um, that's why we don't talk about theology, right? Um, should wine be used at communion? Absolutely. Uh, added towards, towards homosexuality. Now think about this. You have churches out there saying, if you are a homosexual, you will burn in hell for all time. Absolutely guaranteed. And the Anglicans have an openly gay bishop. That is a range of interpretation. <laughs> that is about as broad as you could have, unless we have a church that says, you must be homosexual or you will burn in hell for all time. <laughs> Which I'm sure is coming. I know. Somebody start that. Uh, role of prophecy. Do we have, this is the Mormon thing. Are we allowed to have new prophets? If yes, Mormonism gets a, 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 a big boost. Lots of the fundamentalist preachers give prophecies. Oral Roberts, famously made prophecies all the time. Was he a new prophet? If yes, then you allow new prophecy into your religious understanding. Um, the meaning of revelations. Well, that's a great book. Uh, existence and importance of the Trinity. Oh, the importance of heaven and hell and purgatory. Do they exist? Are they metaphorical? Are they real? Does purgatory exist? How does it function? Extra-biblical text, role of Mary, good Lord, there's a huge one. Was she without sin? Was she a virgin birth? You know, does Jesus even matter? Is it really mostly about Mary? Meaning of the Trinity, by the way, the Trinity is one of those vexing theological questions. Three gods that are one. All the other religions, by the way, could accuse the early Christian church of being polytheistic. They said, like, you got a son, yeah, yeah, we got a God, yep, yep, got a Holy Spirit, yeah, that's three gods. No, 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 that's one God. And so there's like burning of heretics and wars and fighting to, to work out this compromise, which no one understands today. So different sects have a different take on this. Different Christian sects say this different things about the emphasis on the Holy Spirit uh, and God the Father and Jesus, and are they one material, or are they separate material? Um, purgatory, marry me, blah. Uh, role of priests, should priests be elected by the congregation? This was a big breakthrough of the Protestant Reformation, by the way. Nature of church governance, by the way, part of the democratic movement in the United States came from the Protestant idea of the synod, that this is all elected officials, that we do this communally, not from the king, not from the pope or the cardinal, but it's from the ground up, that the people elect the priests, and then the priests elect the super priests who go to the synods, which are just sort of big um, conventions for religious folks, um, and then they decide doctrinal issues communally as an expression of the will of the congregation, which is completely different from the pope chatting with God and saying, well, this is what I think, and passing it down. Both of these institutions have a long history, but the U.S. Uh, is democratic system has heavily influenced by the Reformation's emphasis on democracy in choosing priests and making doctrinal law. But think about this, the notion of voting on what is religiously correct. This is a, this is a new, this is a kind of a new idea in the Protestant Reformation. Um, shoo, nature of church government, relationship between the Bible and science, origin of man. I mean, it, there is a church for everybody on every subject. Now how this actually works out is no one ever talks about any of this. A lot of the research shows that when Americans, religious Americans, move from one community to another community, 
They shop around for a church they like. Does it have a good day's care center for my kids? Is the building beautiful? Do they have music I like? It's a service at a time that's convenient for me. Do they have a good music program, if that's what I'm interested in? That's not a heavily theological approach <laughs> to choosing a church. It's a very individual approach. In fact, the largest church in the United States has like 40,000 weekly attenders. And it's, I think, Lakewood, Lakeland, and it's in Texas. Um, and one of the things that they get criticized for is, you know, they don't seem to have a really strong religious message. <laughs> and what they have is they have this, the part of what they do is this thing called the word of faith, which is a notion of announcing things and saying them makes them happen. God hears you and makes them happen. I find this fascinating because it's a precise or, or pretty precise copy of the idea of the Amida Buddha movement in Buddhism, which said you don't need all this Buddhist theology, you don't need all these texts, you don't need all these priests, you don't need all these complications. You just say Amida Buddha, Amida Buddha, Amida Buddha, and you will be saved. That's all you need to do. It's a very similar idea. It gets rid of all that messy overlay. We all go, we feel good about ourselves, and, and that, there you have it. And so despite the fact that there is absolutely no coherence whatsoever to religion in the United States, nobody agrees about anything, people still attend at an incredible rate, a, a disproportionate rate relative to other uh, modernized, industrialized countries. Um, but no one ever, this is the key, the only way you maintain this is you never bring it up. You never talk about theological issues. Because if you do, you immediately piss people off. Because what you realize is that you get everything. Somebody agrees, thinks about, feels about every issue about 117 different ways. And they can find translations, thinkers, prophets, books, quotes, uh, that support them. And so what you get is endless amounts of debate and war that sort of go no place, which again takes us back to your original founding fathers. Um, one of the things that's happened recently is they call them the new atheists. So these are noisy atheists. And the reason people don't like them is not because they're atheists. It looks like many of our founding fathers were atheists. People like them. It's because they ask messy doctrinal questions. And we do not like messy doctrinal questions. We like to ignore them, if at all possible, because what we discover, as I mentioned, was uh, this incredible mess. Um, and so this is a strange, strange world. And because we have no agreement about anything, except for that it's important to be religious, whatever that means, you get one of the things I mentioned earlier, which is the schools. So we have millions of students enrolled in religious schools, but they're enrolled in every possible kind of program. Some of these schools you would not know they're religious, some of these schools you would definitely know they're religious. But what it means, do you segregate girls from boys? Some schools do this. Does everybody have to wear a uniform? Some schools do this, some schools do not do this. My favorite one is the Jesuit college in um, Seattle that no longer teaches Latin or Greek, but they do teach Buddhism. <laughs> it's true. This is absolutely true. They have Buddhist classes. They don't have Latin or Greek. Jesuits fallen on hard times. Uh, but, but so this, this uh, diversity is immense. And it has created a parallel Christian universe. Anything that happens in quote-unquote mainstream secular culture is mirrored 
in evangelical, biblical, Christian culture. So the people know Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie came out. So they had an answer to this, and a Christian movie came out. And it's an answer to Fifty Shades of Grey. There's uh, Christian death metal bands. I just love that idea. <laughs> I just love the idea of a Christian death metal. There's a lot of them. I'm not making this up. There's Christian pornography. I look this up. You have, you have great films that I'm sure you don't watch out. Watch like The Body of Chris and Lazarus Rises. I, I, I wish I could make this up. I can't make this up. Now, there are many, many groups of Christians who would condemn that. Pornography is bad. That's evil. It's wrong. It's morally offensive. But then you have groups who are saying, no, it's great. It's good. You should make biblical pornography. And it's like, okay, you know, we, it's like I said, everything, everywhere. It's, it's, it, there is a mirror. Whatever it is, there is, is, a, is a generally really bad version of it uh, in, in the Christian world. Uh, but it is not just Christianity, and this is the important thing to know. Many of the people, about 10 or 15% of the people will say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I do believe in the spiritual. Now, this is the perfect American response, because obviously we have no idea what Christianity means, and, and, and then we just make it even more confusing by talking about the spiritual. There is something. It's the spiritual. What does that mean? We have no idea. But the importation of Buddhism and Taoism from the East gave us a great test case. What would we do when we encountered a new religion? The answer is we would do it exactly the way we've done Christianity, which is turn it into anything we want and never talk about doctrine. So my, I just as an example, I just love this. Um, Here's just some titles that I got from Amazon quickly. Just no problem. So, The Tao of Dating, The Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Irresistible. This is apparently a Taoist text. <laughs> now, that's just crazy, right? That's, uh, the Tao of Business, Using Ancient Chinese Philosophy to Survive and Prosper in a Time of Crisis. If there's anything less Taoist than business, I don't know what it is. The Taoist's approach to business is quit your job. Um, uh, white collar Zen, using Zen principles to overcome obstacles and achieve your career goals. Because I think this is what the Zen Buddhists were thinking about. They're like, man, I need a 401k. If I meditate long enough and carefully enough, I will feel the stock options. Ah, uh, you know. Um, the Zen of Selling Art, which is like sort of some sort of perfect melange. Essays on Art Business Success. Zen Entrepreneurship, Walking the Path of the Career Warrior. Right? But this, this I order them all, by the way, because they're just great. They're just great. I didn't look for Zen pornography. I should have. I'm sure it's there. But you see, this is, this is what we do. We, we take whatever it is, we suck the content out because we do not want to talk about theological issues, whether it's in Buddhism or Taoism or Christianity or Islam. No, we will not talk about it. Because as soon as we start talking about it, we discover that, as at our founding, we're incredibly diverse and we don't agree about anything. And then we just fill it. We pour it into the vessel of the spiritual or the Christian or the whatever, the Zen, whatever we want. It's a, it's a shopping consumer sort of approach to religion. If your religion is not providing me the kind of God I want, I'll go to one that is. This is a much better God. 
comes with free shipping. You know, it, it, it's that, it, it is this kind of concept. And a return policy. And a return policy, that's right. <laughs> Very good, I like that. Any day now, we're gonna get the return, right? Uh, yeah. but, 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 the, but, but this concept of free choice, it, it, again, it's from, from our founding. People came over here and went, what you're doing is wrong, so we're going to beat you up. And then those people said, well, okay, we're going to move. And so we're going to set up a new community. And then they splintered, and that community splintered. And they just splinter, 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 splinter. Move west, move west, move west, move west. Um, hit San Francisco, get Zen, move east, move east, move east. Right? It's just, it's just uh, it's, it, that's been ongoing. I think the ultimate expression of this, by the way, is the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, which whose, whose doctrine is officially to have no creed. I'm not making that up. This is their official doctrine. Unitarian Universalism is a faith tradition that encourages each individual to develop a personal faith. See, this is the logical extension of everything that happened in the United States is to say, well, I'll just have my own. But I want to gather with other people who have their own. And so we'll do that, but we'll never talk about what they are. This is, again, it's the key. We'll gather for music and chats, and it'll be wonderful. We won't talk about religion. Uh, it draws from many different religions in it, the belief that no one religion has all the answers and that most have something to teach us, which is a nice concept, a nice idea, but it is very, very far from the notion of having any coherent, again, theological whole. But it turns out we don't care about that. We've never had that as a country. And so when you see these outbursts of religious arguments, which we have all the time, by the way, in the last 50 years, there's been over 100 cases to the Supreme Court dealing with the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So this is, this is running at about two a year regularly. The arguments just go on endlessly. Many, many of them are brought by one religious group against another religious group. You would think it would be the ACLU saying, oh, you religious people, you know, stop infringing on rights or imposing. There's there plenty of those, but lots and lots of them are actually two religious groups fighting it out. And the court has to continually adjudicate between this and say, look, no, 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 you can't make these people do that. You can't make those people do that um, for, for religious grounds. And it just, it, go, it gets very complicated. For instance, there was a, a, a very interesting case of the Native American religious group saying, we want to use peyote. This is in the 70s. And they're saying, well, we'd always use peyote as a religious group. And the court's like, damn. Peyote controlled substance. It's illegal, federally controlled, but clearly establishment clause. That was their religion. That is their religion. And so they said, uh, roughly, if I remember the, the case correctly, if you're a member of a Native American tribe who has that history, you can use peyote for religious festivals. It was a, it was a major win for, for the establishment clause, a freedom of religion. A lot of countries, particularly in Europe, have freedom from religion. This is an important distinction. You're free from the influence of religion. In the United States, we take it almost entirely as freedom of religion. I'm free to practice whatever religion I want. And since you know, 90 to 95% of the people respond that they have one, that means the working assumption is that pretty much everybody is religious in some way. And the fact that you're, you're moderately damaged if you're not. So the spikiness of the new atheist movement runs counter this, not because people hate atheists so much, I would argue, but because they raise all these issues. 
They, they poke on all, all that soft spot where an Episcopalian is going to say to a Baptist, no, I think you're wrong on doctrine. We don't agree on this. The Episcopalians and the Baptists do not want to have an argument. The Baptists and, and the Anabaptists don't want to have an argument. The Foursquare and the Methodists don't want to have an argument because we would be arguing forever. And so this is this sort of bizarre neverland that we're in. A, a, a deeply, and all, again, all the evidence suggests if you look at the money that flows into churches, it's massive. If you look at the religious schools, religious universities, this, uh, uh, parochial schools, it's, you, again, millions and millions of students. There's uh, big TV uh, stations that are dedicated to this, newspapers, um, uh, Bible publishing houses, religious bookstores, not, not to mention churches. Uh, they own vast tracts of land. They own camps. The Catholic Church, of course, is one of the largest landowners in the world also in the United States. But when was the last time you've heard a public debate about any theological issue? It, it, it practically, I, I could not come up with a general debate. So on one hand, we don't agree on anything, and yet we never discuss it. And then you get these weird outcroppings. I don't know if people remember The uh, Last Temptation of Christ, the movie. So, so this was uh, based on a book by Nico Kazantzakis, who a really devoutly, uh, sort of medieval devoutly religious uh, Greek um, guy. And so he made the book, speaking of what is the nature of Jesus, he wrote a book, The Last Temptation of Christ, in which he said the real thing for Jesus was he was a man. And so what was his temptation? His temptation was to live a normal life to have friends, to have a wife, to have children, to enjoy myself, and to die a regular man. That was the last temptation. That was what was so seductive. That's what he sacrificed. When they tried to release this movie in the United States, it was protested. Lots of people lined up and said, no, 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 you cannot show this film. It is a blaspheme against the church. What well, was a blaspheme against one take on the life of Christ? There's a very long, all the way back to the medieval churches, of this take on Jesus as basically an incarnate man. But if you thought that he was sinless, well, now we've got a fight on our hands. Uh, and so with the incredible, impressive integrity of, of uh, film studios everywhere, they pulled it from the theaters. Um, <laughs> about 10 years ago, they released a film called The Passion of Christ. People know this one. Um, that was in Aramaic and Hebrew, which is great. How well is that film going to do? Pretty well, it turns out. Um, in which it's the torturing and death of Jesus that is displayed. An endless sort of, it was kind of a snuff film, right? Where they just torture him, torture him, torture him, suffer, 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 then he dies. We loved that, we as a community. <laughs> this was what we wanted. Large parts of the theology in the United States said this is the story we like. The one where he suffers and dies. Not the one where he enjoys himself and dies, that's bad. The suffering, the dying, that's what we buy our tickets for. So that was hugely embraced. But it opened up this fissure. Well, what is the real story? Which is the story that's allowed to be told? But that's a very rare moment where you really got a lot of people upset. Oh, no. No, 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 that's a different take. But it's a 
both of them seem reasonable within the context, and both of them have long-running histories in the theology. But again, to return, this is not exclusive to Christianity. This is the same thing that happens with virtually every religion that encounters the United States. Can you convert and become a Jew? Lots of people convert to become Jews. The Jews aren't so clear on this. Like, we want to join your synagogue. Really? Why? This is not historically how we've done it. Historically, people have thrown rocks at us. We're comfortable with that. Joining in from the outside is freaking us out, right? This, and so this has become a big issue for them. And why would people want to join? You know, it, it's sort of trendy. It's fashionable. Um, and that's the way religion. Zen teachers come over, right? And they come and they, they teach all kinds of crazy things. Um, you know, and generally, almost always, I was talking to my friend about this the other day, almost always ends in scandal and, and thievery, right? This is sort of the history of, of, of Zen Buddhism in the United States. They set up temples and they rip people off and they sleep with the, everybody and then it ends in acrimony and then and on it goes. But that's not the real Zen. You know, these Buddhists are the real ones or those ones or should you be in a monastery? Are women evil, right? You know, Buddhism gives you every opportunity to believe everything. But we still shop. This is where I want to end up, because it is a strange phenomenon. You would think, oh, well, if you look at the polling from much of Europe, the degree, percent that they think religion is important is low. Because if you can be an agnostic and say, well, I think religious is important, and you can be a Catholic and say, I think religious is not, religion is not all that important. <laughs> Even very strongly, uh, countries that have very strong religious attendance often do not say religion is that important. In the United States, we say religion is pretty important. Like I said, we rate very high, like Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, these kinds of countries. Um, and, but why? Why does this continue in a place where there's no agreement and we have this strange history? And again, I think part of it is because what we look for is what makes us comfortable what makes us happy, what makes us feel good. And there is such a diversity available that we can find a place for ourselves where we go, well, this is where I feel good. This is where I feel I'm happy about this message or lack of message. I like the school, I like the daycare, they have good parking, they have nice music. Whatever it is that appeals to us, it's good social services. Many places, church provide very solid social services for the people. And so that's a, a reasonable response. And then if any public official or like a, or, or, or a sort of the new atheist step forward and say, religion is bad, as a community, what we tend to hear is, why are you attacking the Unitarians? They're perfectly nice. My kids are in the Baptist school. They get free health care and, and lunches, and it's great. Don't attack that. And so it's this strange <coughs> amalgam where there's no belief, but a really high level of comfort. Anytime there's an attack, we hear there's an attack on what we like, but not on things that we might dislike. Because we, we say, well, the religion is, I, I'm religious, this is what I believe, therefore, this is an attack on me. And so again, so politicians do everything they possibly can to steer clear of anything having remotely to do with religion. Because the second they do, they find out that this just will blow them up. And, and so far, I mean, this may change, but so far, 
no really successful political candidate has had any kind of strong religious message, which is odd to think about in a country with 90% of the population self-identifying as religious. If Mike Huckabee can pull it off in the primaries this year, which seems unlikely, but if he can, he might. But one of the things that they've been doing, just to bring it up to date, is toning down all this religious stuff. They're like, well, we gotta, you know, not, not that he's particularly crazy or anything, they're just saying, just make it vague. The vaguer, the better. Say vague things and people will be happy and they'll like you. Say specific things, they'll be unhappy and they won't like you. And again, if you think about it, you go back to Carter, was a deeply religious man. All the evidence is deeply religious. Reagan, all the evidence is not at all. <laughs> then you had George Bush Sr. may not have had a heart or a brain, right? I mean, then you go, <laughs> then you go, uh, 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 Clinton, certainly weak in the moral fiber department, right? And then you had George Bush Jr. who always claimed to have religion, but nobody ever saw any evidence of it. And, and then you have Barack Obama, apparently a crypto-Muslim. Uh, hard to know what he believes, but it's hard to know what any of them believe. And again, this is, this is the key to it. So I, I know this, maybe I don't mean to repeat myself, but it's an extraordinarily strange thing to live in a country that has such a high rate of self-identification with religion in which none of our leaders want anything to do with it at all. And if you look at religious leaders, they almost invariably, not invariably, but generally, particularly the larger, more mainstream ones, talk about political issues. They never want to talk about religious issues. No one wants to talk about religious issues. They will say, we think um, gay marriage is wrong. So that's, we think that is wrong. Okay, theologically, why? Because it's wrong, it's morally offensive. Well, what, what's the grounding of it? It's very rare for that to get pursued. Similarly, you'll get people on the right who say, well, you know, there's all this stuff in the Bible about helping the poor. Okay, so did you have that outreach fundamental argument for social welfare in the country? It's makeable, and in a country of 200 million Christians, you'd think it would be out there all the time. Try and find it in a major newspaper, magazine, speech from a leading politician, senator, House of Representatives, governor. Good luck. It's, it's almost not there. And so this is the weird secret of religion in the United States. We're a very religiously influenced country. We have lots and lots. We have like virtual infinite supply of it. But we have no theology, no coherent group theology. So we never discuss it. And when we do, it almost always leads to strife. So as we go forward, because we've got presidential elections coming up, we have all kinds of problems in the world, listen when you hear people make religious arguments. and Ask yourself, are they just invoking religion generally, usually what happens? So, so for instance, I think Obama just this week said, the ISIL people, those aren't religious people. Those are terrorists. Which is nice, because we like to think, yeah, religious people don't kill people. Except for the history of religion is an <laughs> endless slaughter. 
is a wave through an ocean of human blood and suffering as believers kill the bad people who don't believe correctly. That is the history of religion, or at least a big part of it. And to say that, oh, somehow they're outside the mainstream, I mean, they're awful and terrible and it's just unimaginably horrible what they're doing, but there's a very good traditional religious approach that does these things. For instance, the Inquisition, the wars of the Reformation were not friendly. They didn't play tag, freeze tag, okay, we win, right, we're Protestants. No, that was not how they fought these wars. I mean, it's the, the endless, endless, endless bloody slaughter is, is part of the history of religion. But we don't want to talk about that. We want to say religion is nice. It's the content that makes me comfortable. I'm uncomfortable with them killing people. Therefore, they're not religious. And by the way, they certainly aren't representative of Islam generally because there's over a billion Muslims in the world. If they all wanted to do that, the world would be a much deadlier, unpleasant place. Just as the Christians in the United States occasionally shoot abortion doctors or blow things up, they aren't generally representative. Of, because if everybody felt that way, there'd be a lot more bombs and a lot more death. But we, see, we don't like to think of it that way. That, those are the bad people, so they're not really religious, because it makes me uncomfortable. And for us, religion is about comfort. And so when you see these outcroppings of religion, ask yourself, is this really a theological issue that's being debated? Or is this a fra fracture or fissure in society generally into which everybody who participates is pouring their favorite religious argument. Not always, but most of the time, this is what's going on. It's not an upswelling of religious authority or power or interest. Always been present. You can't find a time in American history when it's not been there. But it's an increase in insecurity, instability, a feeling of threatenedness, that which we then, participants, then attach all this religious meaning. So there you have it. America is a weirdly religious and religiously weird country. And the secret is we have no theology. But, and I ask you, I challenge you, if you don't believe me, try raising a theological question with somebody. It's very awkward. People get upset with you. But do it anyway. So there you have it. Religion in America. Thank you.